In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, if you've been following along the past couple of weeks, you've maybe noticed that we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew this summer. Last week we heard those amazingly comforting words from Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. But a lot of people didn't come. Or if they did, they came to challenge Jesus or to question him, not to follow him, not to be comforted, not to be unburdened by him. This week we we skip ahead to chapter 13, that's our, our gospel reading that we just heard, and I don't know, if you're like me, when you skip over things, you kind of go, well, what, what was that all about? So what's in Matthew chapter 12? What happens? Well, actually a lot. It's a very action-packed chapter, and I would encourage you to read through it. But here's just a very quick synopsis of what happens. The Pharisees come and accuse the disciples of breaking the Sabbath day because they were picking up grains or heads of grain to eat. They didn't stop there. It only got worse. They, They went on then to accuse Jesus after he cast out an evil spirit from a man who couldn't see or speak. They accused Jesus of actually being from the devil himself. Jesus responded with kind of a a smart thing to say. It makes a lot of sense that the devil would cast out the devil. And from that day on, we're told that the Pharisees started to plot the death of Jesus. But the crowds kept following Jesus. They, They kept wanting to listen to this man and watch him as he performed his miracles. And as they grew larger and larger, Jesus' family started to get a little worried about him. They thought that all of the success and all of the crowd was sort of getting to his head. He wasn't eating. He wasn't remembering to do certain things. And so they thought that he started to go a little crazy. And so Mark tells us in his gospel that, that Jesus' or that Jesus family actually came to take charge of him. They came to take him away from the crowds to protect him, to keep him safe because he didn't know what he was doing. And yet the crowds continued to grow. So much so that we heard today in our gospel that there were so many people, Jesus had to go out into a boat while the people remained on the shore just so that everyone could fit. And here's the question then that begs, going from chapter 11 and 12 into 13, how is it that there could be such a wide range of a response to this man Jesus, to his message, to his miracles? How is it that the religious leaders of his day could accuse him of being demonic and want to kill him? How is it that his family could think that he was out of his mind and yet everyday people like you and me just continued to flock to him? To even to begin asking questions like, is this the one we've been waiting for? In other words, it begs the question, why is it that some believe Jesus and others don't? And to answer that question, Jesus tells a parable. This parable that we heard in our gospel reading from Matthew 13, I think it's probably one of the more well-known parables that Jesus tells. And I think it's because Jesus actually gives us the explanation to it. 
He doesn't do that for most of the parables. At the same time, I think it also is maybe one of the more misunderstood parables, strangely enough. You see, the question that a lot of people, if you read commentaries or go online or listen to preachers, I've done this myself, I know it. The question that a lot of Bible commentaries and preachers want you to wrestle with with this text is, what kind of soil are you? You were thinking that yourself as I read it, weren't you? Oh man, I wonder, am I a rocky soil? Am I the path? Well, no, you don't have to wrestle with those questions because you're here. You're a Christian. You believe it. So very clearly, you are the good soil. And if that's all you get walking away from this parable, you need to understand something. You really haven't gotten anything of what Jesus wants you to get from this parable. All you've gotten is a little bit of some level of self-righteous pride that you are good soil and everybody else, well, they really aren't. What kind of dirt are you is the wrong question to ask when it comes to this parable that Jesus tells. And it's not what Jesus is after when he tells it. Truth be told, all of us are every kind of soil that Jesus describes. Because this parable isn't about the soil. It's about something much different. So what is Jesus teaching then? Well, three things I'd like for us to consider this morning from this parable. And the first is this. The seed, which is the word of God, is constantly under attack. While you're sitting there trying to figure out what type of dirt you are or what type of dirt your neighbor is, the devil is already going to work trying to attack and snatch that seed away from you. As soon as you hear the word preached, as soon as you open your Bible to read it, the moment that you open your mouth to share the scriptures with a friend, a spiritual battle instantly begins. A battle to prevent you from hearing the word of God, or if you've heard it, a battle then to prevent it from taking root in your heart. And the battlefield, this is kind of strange to think about, the battlefield is actually then your ears and your heart. This is where the attacks, this is where this spiritual battle takes place. To stop you from hearing the word of God or to prevent it from taking root in your heart. That's the first spiritual truth that Jesus wants us to take from this parable. The seed is the word of God and it is constantly under attack. And the second is this. He wants you to know who those attackers are. Who are the enemies of this seed, this word of God? Well, the three great enemies of the Christian are the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. Martin Luther lays these out in his small catechism. We teach these to our young people in the third and sixth petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Luther says it, but where in Scripture is it taught? That the three great enemies of the Christian are the world, the devil, and our own sinful nature. I think one of the places is right here in this parable in Matthew chapter 13. The devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Or as Jesus refers to them here, the birds, the rocks, and the thorns. 
The birds are the devil, who is constantly snatching and biting at the word through trouble and distraction, through deception and temptation, through whatever means he can find to keep you from hearing God's word or to prevent you from believing it. Jesus goes on to warn about the rocks and the weeds. This is the world and our sinful nature, or more specifically, trouble and pleasure. The two twin dangers the world and our flesh attack us with. This is amazing insight that Jesus gives to us, and we cannot miss it. Here's what Jesus is saying. You've heard the word of God. You believe it. You have faith. You're a Christian. Great. Don't take it easy now. Because the devil will not stop. Knowing that you have faith, in fact, rages him all the more. He comes to attack your faith. And the two main ways that he does that is through suffering and pleasure. The first is the rocks, this assault of suffering. Jesus says that some of the seed fell among the rocks. This is the person, he says, who hears the gospel and believes it. They grow up very quickly, but then the sun comes out. And then this faith, this plant, withers and dies. Jesus said it like this, When trouble and persecution come from the world, on account of the word, he quickly falls away. This picture in nature is not foreign to us, is it? We get this, we see it every year. After the rain and the snow up in the mountains through the wintertime, we see the mountains and the hills around us turn to green. They are lush with flowers and wide ranges of colors. It's a beautiful sight, but give it a, give it a month, maybe two. And sooner or later, everything is scorched, withering, and dead. Now here's the mystery that Jesus wants us to get. If someone were to come and visit California and ask you, why does this happen every year? Why does everything go from green and lush to brown and withering? An acceptable answer, and maybe even a temptation for you to answer, would be, well, because the sun is too hot. It burned the foliage. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus looks at this plant that has withered and died, and he doesn't say the problem is the heat. He doesn't say the problem is the sun. No, Jesus says, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. You've probably seen this too. You know someone who was a believer, was a Christian at one point in their life, but they're not anymore. They suffered some great affliction or tragic loss in their life, and we assume that whatever that trouble was, that was the reason why they fell away. But this is the mystery that Jesus wants us to understand. The assault on that person's faith, the reason the plant died, was not because of the suffering or the trouble or the testing or the temptation or whatever it was. The problem was that there is no root. That their faith was not grounded. In fact, 
if the seed, if the faith had deep roots, then the sun coming out actually makes it grow all the more. And just as it's good for the plant, Jesus says it's also good for us too. Suffering and testing and temptation and persecution and affliction and agony and all of the troubles of this life actually can serve to strengthen our faith if we have deep roots. So for us, to fight against the assault of suffering, we need to strive for a deeply rooted faith. Well, what does that look like? Well, actually, it probably looks very different for a lot of you here this morning. But really, it all comes back to this. It means being a student of the Word of God. Deep roots come from meditating on God's Word. Listen to how Psalm 1 puts it, the very first words in Psalms. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. It's one of the sad realities, one of many sad realities, I think, of the church in our day, that we've sort of become content with very shallow theology. And I think part of the reason why we've become content with that is because we've been convinced that the Bible, that the study of God's Word is just primarily about information. And if you've been a Christian for a while in your life, which most of you have been, then what really else do you need to learn? You've got all of the information, or most of the information at least, that you need. You see, this is why it's easy to to miss church or even miss Bible class. Because I know what I need to know. I have all the information I need, and there really is nothing left for me to learn. But that's not what the Scriptures are. A mere source of information. Not primarily, anyway. Jesus says they're a seed that plants faith into your heart. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah that the word is like water that comes down from heaven to nourish that faith. And all of it serves to grow deeper roots. So that when your time of testing and suffering and affliction comes, and it will, your leaf will not wither and your faith will not die. Now again, what does this look like practically speaking for each of you? It will probably look a little different. Some of you are retired and you can sit at home and read your Bible for hours on end throughout the day. God be praised. Keep doing it. For others of you, maybe to squeeze in 10, 15 minutes at the beginning or end of the day is a challenge for you. Try. Overcome that challenge. Maybe it's not just opening the Bible. Maybe you're more interested in reading like a devotional book or a theological book, but you don't know where to begin. You don't know what kind of book you want to read. Ask me. I would love to make a recommendation for you. I've got shelves of books that I've either read or I intend to read someday. Be happy to give one to you. 
for others of you, maybe it's just simply turning on some sort of Bible-based or theological podcast on your hour-long commute to work in the morning or hour-and-a-half drive on the way home. The easiest part and the most simple way, though, is to simply be here on Sunday morning. To make Sunday morning non-negotiable for your family. To stick around for Bible class. To bring your children to Sunday school. To watch as the Holy Spirit drives those roots of faith deeper and deeper. So that we are not only able to stand in our hour of affliction, but to actually flourish in the midst of it. That's the first warning Jesus gives us. The second is the exact opposite of suffering. If the devil can't drag us away, if he can't snatch the seed of faith out of our hearts through suffering, well, then he tries to do it with pleasure. This is the seed that was cast among the weeds and the thorns. Jesus calls it the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. In other words, not only does the devil attack us with things we don't want, suffering, pain, affliction. He also attacks us with things we do want. Friends, this is so important for us to remember that God's word and our faith have an enemy that is living inside each and every one of us. It's not just out there in the world. It's right here in your own heart. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I hate, this is what I keep on doing. It's this spiritual battle between our sinful nature and the Spirit. He's talking about this internal battle that every Christian has. Our flesh is attracted to all the wrong things, and we have to know that about ourselves. And we have to know that the devil is using all of that information to his own advantage. The devil is willing to work with you as your ally, as the ally to your sinful nature, and it makes the bad things that we shouldn't want sound like good things and beneficial things and beautiful things. This is actually how almost every temptation works. Think back to the very first temptation. The devil comes to Adam and Eve and he sounds like a friend. He sounds like an ally. He's offering them good advice. This is how you're going to get better. This is how you're actually going to get closer to God, to become more like God. And what do we hear next? Eve actually starts to look at the fruit and realizes that it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. This actually does sound like a good idea. Thanks for the advice, Satan. The devil convinces us that what our sinful nature desires must be good because it will make us happy. He convinces us that it is the will of God that imprisons us in this life. And that only by doing what it is that we want, that our sinful nature wants, will we finally then be liberated. And here's the thing, you and I know better. We know that whoever sins is a slave to sin. We know that sin binds us to death. We know that it is only through faith in Christ that we are ever actually set free. But the devil comes along and he turns it all upside down and it makes perfect sense to our sinful nature. 
And this is what Jesus is talking about with the thorns and weeds. The assault on the word, the attack on our faith through worldly pleasures that appeal to our sinful nature. And we could go through each of the Ten Commandments and you can see the things that we are lured to do that are at odds with the word and will of God, but I don't know that there is any more attack more fierce in this day and age than the attack on our young people when it comes to the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment demands sexual chastity and purity from people, which means no sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage. And yet how many teens, how many people in their 20s have left the church and choked their faith because they just couldn't or wouldn't say no to their flesh? With this parable... Jesus warns you to fight. To fight against the desires of your own flesh. This happens when we examine our lives according to the Ten Commandments, when we repent of our sin and its sinful desires, and then to remember and rejoice that God made the Holy Spirit, that that God the Holy Spirit has created and continues to create in us a new self, a new nature made in the very image of Jesus Christ himself, a nature that actually does not desire to break God's commands, but desires what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. A new nature that is strengthened and nourished to fight through the word of God. Which brings us to the third truth that Jesus teaches us in this parable, which is this. The word which is attacked is the same word that overcomes and wins the victory. This too is, to a degree, a mystery, and I wish I could preach it better to you. Maybe give me a couple years. This too is a mystery, because this is a profound truth about how the kingdom of God works that the same word that is attacked by the devil, by the world, by our own sinful nature, is also the same word that overcomes them all. You see, Jesus wants us to know how greatly the word of God is attacked, and he wants us to know who is doing the attacking. But he also wants us to know to avoid just falling headlong over, well, what's the point then? Our enemies are too great. Their tactics are too wise. He gives us the great comfort of knowing that the word of God is the weapon that defeats them all. Think about it. The seed that the bird picks up on the path is also the poison that kills the bird. I didn't actually do this as a kid, but there was a rumor that swirled around in my younger years that if you actually gave a seagull some Alka-Seltzer, that it would swallow it, thinking that it was bread, and then it would drink seawater, and then it would explode because it, it couldn't burp. I never did it. I never tried it. I think it's actually been debunked. But I thought about it. Maybe some of you did too, but this is the picture. The devil comes and snatches away the very thing that is his ruin. 
Think about how the Apostle Paul says it in that great section at the end of Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, put on the, wor- the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And do you remember what one of those very vital pieces of armor was? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that the very thing the devil assaults is the thing that overthrows him. Or think about it this way. The great hour of victory for the devil was standing there looking at a dead Jesus on a cross. The work was done. They got rid of him. Oh, but irony of ironies. The great hour of his victory was actually his greatest hour of defeat. And Jesus continues to overcome the devil in the exact same kind of way. Through what looks weak and foolish and even dead. Through the foolishness of what is preached and the apparent weakness of his word. Through the seemingly arrogant and powerless words of an absolution, the declaration from Jesus himself that all of your sins are forgiven. Through sink water. And simple words poured over the head of an individual baptizing and adopting you into the family of God and anointing you with the Spirit of God through bread and wine that are the body and blood of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended for you through all of these weak and laughable means. The devil is destroyed. The world is silenced. And your sinful flesh with all of its evil wants and desires is drowned. Jesus has planted in you the seed of life and it will not fail. So be here, brothers and sisters, when that powerful seed is cast week after week. Be here when it is watered and pruned and given the light of life. Rejoice as it continues to be scattered throughout the world and know that it will never return to God empty and neither will you. For in you and through you, God is producing fruit 160, even 30 times what was sown. So is the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God. Thanks be to him. Amen.